0: Thanks, Elliot. Good morning, Richmond. Um, as Elliot said, I'm Phil. Uh, it's good to meet all of you kind of collectively from the front. Um, we're continuing the series this week again on Mark 10. Uh, last week, we had Elliot talking about prayer. Uh, next week, we've got Brad talking about mission. And the final week, we've got Rena talking about evangelism, a topic I know she's pretty passionate about. But this week, this week the topic is service service and servant-heartedness, which is a pretty interesting topic for this kind of day and age. Uh, I think more and more people are really aware of the fact that um, in today's age, we tend to be pretty individualistic. We tend to be um, more separate. We tend to pursue, you know, self-worth, self-fame. We've got the rise of social media. We've got the rise of all kinds of self-help, self-care. And it can feel like this is, you know, we've got uh, the first time in history where we've really commodified that selfishness. Um, I really felt that at Christmas, I don't know how people feel about Christmas, some people are big on Christmas, some people it's not their favorite time of the year. But this Christmas, walking down Rundle Mall, I don't know why, I'm not a big fan of Rundle Mall, but they had all the trees out, there was the tinsel, the lights, the baubles, all the trip, like typical Christmas trappings, and their catchphrase, because you can't have a mall at Christmas without a catchphrase. And you know, in uh, modern fashion, It was hashtag expect it, not hashtag thankful giving or hashtag surprise or hashtag, you know, anything else. Hashtag expect it. And it kind of took me by surprise that even Christmas time, where there's meant to be this kind of spirit of generosity when we're meant to be thinking about thankfulness, we've managed to contort that to selfishness. We've managed to make that about us gift receiving an act not of thankfulness but expectation. But that being said, we don't really have... This isn't the first time in history where people have been selfish or self-focused or, you know, really uh, only cared about their own interests. Throughout time, people have raised empires, subjugated people, had horrible laws. Uh, This is nothing particularly new. And it was the same in Jesus' time. You know, in Jerusalem, uh, at the time, the Romans were occupying that. And you see it in both the politics... We see it in the way households were run, we see it in the way businesses were run, and we see it even in Jesus' followers. So the passage that we're looking at today is Mark 10, Mark 10, 35 to 45. If you've got an internet Bible, actual paper Bible, phone Bible, whatever, feel free to grab that, open it up. And just to set the scene, this is pretty late in Jesus' ministries, he's been, you know gone around the countryside with the apostles. They've seen a great many glorious and wonderful things. He's talked at length about his plan. He's talked at length about his death, even in just the preceding verse. And they're on their way back now towards Jerusalem. And, you know, based on what he said, things are going to get pretty real pretty soon. Um, But the apostles still have a few certain things that are tripping them up uh, and keeping them occupied. So picking up from Mark 10, 35. You will drink the cup I drink, and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You all know that those who were regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercised authority over them not so with you all. Instead, whoever wants to become great amongst you all must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So right off the bat, who are these guys? Who are James and John? Well, two of the twelve, that's pretty straightforward. Brothers, also pretty straightforward. They've also got another name in the Bible. They go by the name of the Sons of Thunder, which is probably a great name for a wrestling duo or what have you, but also it also gives us a bit of insight, along with you know, the rest of the stories of the New Testament, about their character a bit. And these guys were bold, brash, outspoken, straightforward, not exactly tactful. And in this kind of warts and all description, we see them talking about, you know, what's on their hearts or what they're caring about. They don't tiptoe around. They go with that tried and true method of asking for something by asking the person to tell you to give it, promise it before you've even asked. I've seen many of my friends' kids try this. I think it's worked exactly never in human history. But, you know, by all means, they ask him, teacher, you know, give us what we want and then we'll, like, say that you'll give us what we want and then we'll ask for it. Now, to their credit, they had a lot of faith. This was a, a carpenter going back, you know, to Jerusalem with promises of upending the establishment. Um, they've got a lot of faith in this guy. Uh, but they've also seen him in all of his glory. They've seen him stop the wave, stop the storm. They've seen him at the transfiguration. These guys were in Jesus' inner circle. But they know what was coming, they knew something was coming. Uh, And so they kind of wanted to jump the gun a little bit and make sure that, you know, they got their position, they got their authority in whatever worldly kingdom that Jesus was going to bring. Because that's what all the apostles assume he was doing. Back to Jerusalem, establish a worldly kingdom, make sure they got their part of that. And this was not a new topic for the apostles. We see in Mark 9, verses 33 to 34, when he came to Capernaum, Jesus, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed amongst yourselves on the road? But they, the apostles, kept silent, for on the road they had disputed amongst themselves who would be the greatest. I mean, you get a team of 12 guys, people are going to start arguing about what the hierarchy is. That's just, it's going to happen. But these two brothers are asking for the most prestigious positions, the right and left hand. But Jesus responds with them pretty directly. Not by giving them what he wants straight off the bat, but asking them very clearly. Can you drink the cup I will drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Now, both of these are kind of idioms, turns, of phrase from New Testament, Old Testament times. To drink the cup was to take in the experience. Um, it could be a positive thing, to drink from the cup of glory. It could be a negative thing, drink from the cup of suffering. And then the second one, the baptism with which I am baptized. Now this isn't New Testament baptism, this isn't uh, cer- ceremonial baptism, this is literally just the old Greek word for being submerged. And this was typically used for being overcome, being taken over. You see it in the Psalms when people talk about their enemies overcoming them, you see it when people talk about a ship that's sinking. What Jesus is asking is, is can they take part in the pain and suffering? Can they share that cup of suffering that he knows is waiting for him in Jerusalem? And they answer yes. Naively, yes. These two men who, along with the other 12, at the time when Jesus suffers, will disappear, will abandon him. But when Jesus answered them, after their somewhat optimistic yes, he tells them that they will drink. And he's not wrong. They do. It comes later, but to their credit, they really do. James was the first apostle that was martyred. He was killed by Herod with the sword, Acts 12, 1 and 2. And John, John got immersed in a, bat, a vat of boiling oil and then like disowned to a, a prison colony. That's suffering if ever I've heard it. But even after that, even after Jesus' response of denying them their privilege of, of, of the honour and place, what we see is the response of the other 12. They get indignant, the audacity to ask for this. And probably thinking, why well, I should have asked for it. should have asked for it earlier. Everyone's thinking about their rank, their hierarchy, their glory. What are they going to get out of this? What does greatness look like? So first thing first, Jesus has to stop them. He calls them together. He tells them about the way of the world. This is something they knew. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. These guys come from a place that was occupied by a completely different uh, country. They knew what it meant to be oppressed, uh, to be lorded over. They should have known better, but this is the same behavior they were exhibiting even amongst themselves. So, Jesus first sets up the way of the world, reestablishing how we all know everything works. But after that, a short, so short you could kind of miss it, the hinge of this whole passage, not so with you. Now, this is a pretty short rebuke, and there's many things you can do with a short rebuke, but it's hard to get it wrong. There's not a lot of wriggle room in not so with you. It wasn't, this is the way of the world, but you'll be slightly different or this is the way of the world but you'll be a little bit better what Jesus is saying is this is the way of the world and for you none of it not at all in fact he goes on to talk about what it will be like whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all now this is hugely countercultural. this is not Again, just an adjustment. This is a complete upending of the way things were done. This is him taking the status quo, the way people thought about hierarchies, the way they thought about leadership, the way they thought about glory, and turning that around in completely the opposite direction. And then finally, he uses himself in his example. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, this isn't just a once-off example of Christ using himself as an example of servanthood. We see it throughout all of his ministry. We see it maybe most clearly when he washes the disciples' feet. The role of like a host having a dinner, there would be uh, someone, usually the lowest in the household, who would be responsible for washing the feet. And these are guys who, you know, bathed every second, third day, walking dirty streets, open-toed sandals. It was not a great job. You would never dream of doing it as the host. You would definitely never dream of it as honored guest. But Jesus does it for his disciples and asks them to do it for each other. This is God incarnate being happy to wash people's feet as an example of servanthood to these men. And his greatest example, whilst that might have been the greatest example they saw, the greatest example the world would see would be Christ's sacrifice. To come down as God, to do glorious things, stopping the waves, feeding many, even the apostles actually seeing him in all of his glory at the transfiguration, his single greatest most praiseworthy act is his death at the cross, his greatest act of servanthood. Which then raises the question, how do we respond to this? What do we do with this message? And honestly, I struggled a lot with it. Uh, I guess for me, the first thing it raises the question of is, am I servant-hearted? And the first thing that comes to mind is, yeah, no, of course, i servant-hearted. I must be, right? Been around different churches, for a while, done some youth leading and welcome rosters, occasional appearance at a soup kitchen, appeared on music, it's not a good idea, <laughs> but you know, I've, I've, I've done things, I've, I've been a servant on a Sunday, maybe a night during the week, because that's what Jesus called us to, right? He said, be a slave to all twice a week. And so the question sat there, do I truly live a servant-hearted life in response to Christ's message? Do I live a sacrificial love, like his example, on the cross? And the answer is no, not really. It's not a, a sacrificial love, it's a convenient love. I've bounded out my servanthoodness that's not a word, sectioned it off, into the parts of my life where it fits, where it doesn't really cost me anything. I've had a look at my lifestyle, my time, my money, my comforts, worked out what I'm happy to give up, where it doesn't really affect what I want, and that's my sacrificial love, that's my servanthood. What I have is a number of acts of service, but what I need is the character of a servant. The identity of a servant. To live as a servant. And character and posture is not built through making occasional big decisions or grand gestures. It's practiced in every moment of every day. And it should result in a a massively, radically different life lived. But it's not an easy thing to do. It jars with the culture that we're immersed in from day to day, every week when we're at work or in social settings or family or whatever it is. It's hard to recognize the world's hierarchies and priorities in the only way that we make decisions. And so I think it's really important that we look, it was important for me to look at myself and think of that, that one hinge verse, not so with you. Where are those things that I've inherited from the world? And to think... Not so with me. But it's not all doom and gloom. One of the things I've found immensely helpful about the culture here at Richmond is the example of other people uh, throughout the church. There's one particular couple that comes to mind, and I won't name names and I won't embarrass anyone, but I've constantly been amazed over my 12 months at Richmond with their servant-hearted nature. Any job that needs doing, they're on it. It doesn't matter how small, invisible, unpleasant, inconvenient, they're doing it. If there's a toilet that needs washing, it gets done. If there's bins that need to come in, it happens. If someone needs a hand, moving house, late notice, bam, they're there. Every time I turn around, they're just constantly doing something. But what is most impressive isn't the sheer amount of what they do, which is impressive. What's most impressive is their attitude. They're not doing these things out of some sense of obligation or begrudgingly, but they're driven by genuine love for those around them. Even when they're tired or stressed, there's a passion or a desire to do things, just out of love for those around them. This servant-hearted attitude modelled on Christ is a constant inspiration. It's a snapshot of real servanthood in the here and now. And that makes me wonder, what does a service-driven church look like? What should a service-driven church look like? What does a radically different community that has turned the world's ideas upside down The ideas of personal authority and power upside down look like. We all exist as a church, as a community and as individuals in this world of hierarchies and personal glories. That's not going away, we're not called to be not in the world. But as a a community I think it's important for us to constantly consider, constantly be reminded, not so with you, not so with us, To be conscious of the trappings of glory and power and hierarchies that so common seep into the way we do life, the way we build churches, the way we consider and interact with one another. Not so with us. Now that's a big question. What does a radically different church and community look like? And that's not a question that I think I can answer just by myself. As Elliot said, I've only really been here 12 months and I've only had a snapshot of a very small part of the Richmond community. It's so varied and broad, filled with so many different people and so I think it's important that's a question that we address together, that's a question that we discuss together. What do we think a servant-driven, radically loving Richmond looks like? And I'd like to spend some time on that now. Uh, I'd like to have a few minutes where we just talk in amongst ourselves, in whoever's around you, what does that look like for you? What is your vision for a radically loving, loving servant-driven Richmond? And what does that look like for you personally? i spend some time on that now.